so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. So something I'm thinking about, and Hadassah, I know you also work in high school a lot. Um, something I get a lot from my high school students will be like, don't judge me. <laughs> That's like a big statement that is uh, set off. And I think it's a sentiment that is, um, we all, no one wants to be judged. And as educators, I think we've become sort of very scared of judging. I'm very scared of recognizing what the reality is of a person. We don't want to put anyone into a box. We don't want to limit anyone. We don't want to think of anyone as bad. We want to see the good. At the end of the day, though, if we want, this is something that we had, Batsheva Learning Center had a Klali Chanach Badracha course. And something that the Friedrich Rebbe emphasized over and over when it comes to education and nurturing is the importance of knowing your students knowing their milus, knowing their hysteronis very well. And like how that is one of the core tools that we have to be able to educate and nurture and foster growth. So it's interesting to think about like, okay, is it, so are we supposed to be looking out for the bad? How are we supposed to encourage changing negative behaviors if we pretend that they don't exist? are we only supposed to emphasize the positive and work on just building up the positive side? I think this is just like an interesting question that educators um, grapple with. Um, yeah, and as parents as well, like how do we on the one hand see see the positive qualities in our children and see their potential and, and try to bring that out in them and also be having like an honest look at like what where are they actually at and like what can they actually handle and you know how, how do those qualities in your potential and qualities like how do we actually deal with them in like the real world that they're living in? Right. So in this mimer, we're going to explore how Yitzchak viewed Esav and how he was looking at Esav purely from a place of potential um, and how that was perhaps a little bit of a mistake and the, the necessity for not only recognizing potential, but seeing does this potential have the vessels to become a reality, which parts of this person need to be nurtured further so that their potential can be fully developed because potential energy without a fully nurtured vessel is not worth so much. And Yitzchak sort of wants to bypass this, um, this path of needing to refine of and put sort of deal with Asaph's negativity, put him through the ringer, have him, you know, do like that hard work and access just the potential. And we see how this is perhaps not the way to go, that we need to be able to see the amazing potential someone has, but also recognize what are the things that we need to get through to be able to enable that potential to be fully actualized in the best way possible. This episode is sponsored by Minna Hirschkup in loving memory of her grandmother, Yehudas Bas Shmuel. Her yard site was on Chaf Aleph Cheshvan. May her neshama have an aliyah. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor of a special occasion, please reach out to us at admin at bachevalearningcenter.com. Um, this week's Parsha is Parsha's Taldais. 
And in Parshas Taldais, we are introduced to brothers, Yaakov and Esav. And sort of a strange story that happens. A deception between father and son, husband and wife, where we have uh, Yitzchak wants to give the blessings to his firstborn, who is Esav. Um, and Rivka knows that this is not the way it's meant to be, that Yaakov is the one who's supposed to receive the blessings. And so she gets Yitzchak, she gets Yaakov dressed up in Esav's clothes because Yitzchak is blind at this point. And he goes to receive the blessings from his father instead of Esav. And it's just very strange on so many levels. First of all, like we said before, like why all this deception that's going on? Where's the openness and communication? Why are, why is everybody tricking each other? Um, and then just in general, what is with Yitzchak's esteem for Esav from how Esav is presented in the Psukim and even more so in the Medrash and where we the direction that we see Esav goes in, uh, it's pretty self-evident that Esav is not a good guy. So what is it that Yitzchak sees in Esav? And it can't just be this um, blindness that we say that a parent has for their child. Because even if we talk about Avram and Yishmael, right? We have Avram and Yishmael, and we say that Avram is pure chesed. So he's not able to really judge his son, and he has all this love for his son. So he so he keeps his son close by, and it's hard for him to send his son away, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we see who does he give his Yerusha to? It's no, there's no question over there. His Yerusha goes to Yitzchak. He, it's, it's very obvious that he's going, that Yitzchak is his, is who is following in his footsteps. And he sees, and despite the fact that he can see the downsides in Yishmael, he still loves him and he keeps him, he wants to keep him close to him, but he's not going to pass. He understands that this is not the direction for his future generations. Versus through Yitzchak giving the, uh, the brachas to Esav, the, the intention is that this is the continuation of the path. That this is where bracha is like where we're drawing down the energy into this person. So it's very perplexing. How did why was Yitzhak, why did Yitzhak want to give these brachas to Esav? What is it that Rivka understands that um, that um, Yitzhak doesn't understand? And why is it that she can't have this conversation and instead she tricks him in this way? So it's a very strange story, and Hasidus really opens the pages of this story, really enlightens the story in a, in, a, in a really fascinating way. And we've already discussed a few of these concepts. It, actually, in Parshat Chayasara, we were introduced to some of these, to some of the concepts that we're going to talk about today, and we're going to talk about them further in the coming weeks. Um, we're going to talk about the power, the immense power that is found in Esav. It's the power of Tehu which, as we said, we discussed at length last week. Um, and we're going to explore how, what is it that Yitzchak sees? What is Yitzchak's error, perhaps? And how is it that he makes this error? What does it even mean when a tzaddik sort of makes a mistake like this? Those are some of the things we're going to discuss in this mimer. It's like this is probably one of like the more disturbing, disturbing on some level um, stories in Bereshis where, yeah, it does seem a little... Um, it's unsettling. Like, why Why would Rifka choose to do it in this way? And um, yeah, I think it's it's exciting to kind of see it from a new angle. So um, just I'll read a little bit of background into this in the story. So basically, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a long story, but 
Um, Yaakov walks into his father, who's presumably on his deathbed, even though he doesn't pass away till, till a little bit later. Um, and he says, and um, Yitzchak says to him, are you indeed my son Esav? And he says, I am. And he said, serve it to me that I may eat the game of my son so that my soul will bless you. And he served him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his fa- father Yitzchak said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. And he came close, and he kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his clothes, and he blessed him, and he said, Behold, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field, which Hashem has blessed. So the beginning of his blessing is actually the fact that, oh, you smell like the field that Hashem is blessed, which Mepharshim um, explained alludes to Gan Eden, that Yitzchak, that, I'm going to keep on confusing this, that Yaakov came in with the, with the scent of Gan Eden. That, but who did Yitzchak think he was smelling like an Eden? He thought he was Esav, and whose clothes was he wearing? He was wearing Esav's clothes with the intent of tricking his father. So it's interesting that he's going to, that he says that it smells like an Eden. You would think that his clothes smelled like the field, like hunting. So this is part of what we're going to explore. So jumping into it. Behold, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that Hashem blessed, like an Eden. Um, so first of all, to understand how did Yitzchak presume that this was Esav if it smelled like an Eden? And in general, why was Esav so chashav in his eyes? And in general, we can't understand how is it that, ye, that what exactly was the status of Esav in the eyes of Yaakov? Kipam Amara Kasav, because on the one hand, the Pasuk says, Kitzayed Befiv, Shahaya Mermehu, Besheles, Echma, Sernasab, Kevin, Hulu. That on the one hand, it says that Esav would bring Yitzchak food, right? So Esav would bring Yitzchak food. And the Mepharshim explain, Rashi explains over there that what does it mean that he brought him Sayed, that he brought him food? He also would ask him all these like complex questions about how do we take mice or salt and this and that, like all these deep questions that sort of got his father thinking that he is learning and cares about these things. So that's one way that we see that Yitzchak um, sees, views Esav. Um, but on the other hand, the Pasuk also says, this is a famous Pasuk, that this voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are like the hands of Esau. And why did he notice that it was the voice of Yaakov? Because he acknowledged Hashem. And Yitzchak knew that when it came to Esav, the name of Hashem wasn't constantly on his lips. He knew that Esav was not the type of person to be constantly acknowledging Hashem. So obviously, Yitzchak doesn't have his head in the clouds. He understands that Esav is not someone who goes around talking about Hashem. So which one is it? Is he viewing Esav as the son who comes to him with these complex halachic questions? Or is he viewing him as the son who is the hunter and doesn't really care about God? 
What is the general view of Yitzchak toward Esav? But the idea is, Esav sosfisa didahava, psalas hagavura. Yitz Esav represents the impurities of the gold, the leftovers of the gvura de Yitzchak of Yitzchak. So Yitzchak we know is gvura. Avram is chesed, and Yitzchak represents gvura. In general, gvura is represented by gold. Chesed is represented by silver, and gvura is represented as gold. And gold, this is Kabbalistically, gold is a lot more valuable than silver. Um, it's a lot more rare and therefore more valuable. But gold also contains, like if you ever saw pictures of freshly mined gold, it's all dirty and it needs to go through a process of being fired up. And then through the, through the firing process, you remove the dirt from the gold and you extract the gold and basically end up with pure gold. So Asav is the dregs that comes out of the, of the gold, or like we say over here, the psalas, the leftovers of Yitzchak, of Yitzchak's Gevurah. We explain a similar thing about um, Yishmael and Avram, right? That Yishmael is like the leftovers of Avram's kindness and how it sort of gets distorted maybe perhaps in negatively is, Yish- is Yishmael, that he, he basically um, takes from kindness. He takes his energy from kindness. And Esav takes his, ken- his energy from Gvura. He represents sort of the, uh, a level of Gvura, the, what we're calling over here the leftovers of Gvura. And we're going to explain it a little bit more. Um, we know that Zahav is more valuable than, than silver. And from these dregs comes Esav. This is another interesting medrash that talks about how right, right before, um, right when Yaakov died, there was a race who was going to get the last resting spot in Ma'ar Samach Pela. And I haven't looked at this medrash recently, but I know there was sort of a showdown between the son of Esav or the grandson of Esav. And um, I believe it was the grandson of Esav and the Shvatim, and he ends up cutting off Esav's head, and the head rolls into Maris HaMachpela, and it says it rests like in the chest of Yitzchak. That's where it nestles itself, and that's where it's buried. So Esav's head ends up in Maris HaMachpela. And this is not random, not just a random thing that his head ends up there. We're gonna explain this Kabbalistically. Ulahabin Inyan Reisha, to understand this concept of the head. yod. We're getting a little esoteric over here, so everyone, um, we got to plug in, <laughs> so we can, we'll hopefully come and under, come out of it, understanding it. But we are going to go through a little bit of Kabbalah before we come out on the other side. Okay, so Kenegad, um, so there are eleven ingredients in the Kataras. Hatzari, Vatifaran, Hulu, and it's he starts listing some of the ingredients. It's in Carbonis. We say it before davening. And they represent the ten spheres of Tuma. So the same way there are ten spheres of Kedusha, there are also ten spheres of impurity. There are also ten spheres of Tuma. 
שהוא החייס שבקדושה, המחיה אז זה לאומה זה. What does it mean the ten spheres of Toma? It's the ten spheres of Kedusha, how they give energy to the other side. Kamaisha yesh bekedusha yud spheres, just like there is in Kedusha ten spheres, kach yesh mamish beklipa, so too is literally in klipa, ha'ara mi yud spheres de Kedusha, a remnant of the ten spheres of Kedusha. So klipa gets its energy from the yud spheres of Kedusha, and it sort of creates a whole new set of spheres of klipa, that which receives its energy from the ten spheres of Kedusha. Ach bekedusha eser v'leitesha v'leyad aleph. But when it comes to holiness, it's specifically 10. It's not 9, and it's not 11. It says there are 10 spheres, and it emphasizes that it's 10. It emphasizes that there is no more and no less. But it's interesting. We said that the 11 ingredients of Keteris represent the 11 spheres of um, the 10 spheres of Klippa, but it shouldn't there be 10? Why is there 11? How does, where does this 11 come in? So to understand this, we're going to explain how exactly Klippa receives these spheres. I, th- I remember this coming up like kind of as a side note in the first mimer and on Parsha Spiritus. <laughs> so like I might, I might trigger your memory if you listen to that, to that mimer as well. Yes, exactly. And we're going to expand on it a bit more. And it actually, it refers back to the Chet. Um, we're going to refer back to the Chet Itzadas as well. So Va'inyan. Ki al yedei ha'chaya shanimshach b'kedusha, hinekseb utzva shumayim l'chamashachvim, shehemetilim machmas shemasigim ha'chayas, shanimshach aleim b'kedusha sayispar. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, it says that they are basically like the army of Hashem and they bow before him. And what is a soldier? A soldier is someone that has no will of its own. He just listens to the command of the person that's above him. So similarly, the spheres have no will of their own. They're completely and totally battle to Hashem. Why is it that they're battle to Hashem? It's because they know where their energy comes from. And because they have an awareness and they see where they're receiving their energy from, they have no choice but to be battle. Because when you see that it's Hashem himself that's giving you energy, if we were cognizant in our minds on a daily basis, that all of our energy we are receiving directly from Hashem. And we saw this like in our in our mind's eye. We actually were able to experience, we had das in the fact that all of our energy is coming from Hashem. We also would be battle. The only reason that we're able to exist independently is because there's an illusion that we are independent. If there was no illusion, then we would not be independent. So because there's no illusion for the Esrashtiris Elyanim, they see their source that they come directly from Hashem. Therefore, they're completely battle. They have no sense of self, and they just do whatever it is that Hashem wants them to do. But this is not the case with Klippa. Klippa says, this is, a ref, this is referred to in Tanya a number of places, that Klippa lifts itself up like an eagle. It thinks that it's so great. It thinks that it's um, in charge. Bechutzpah, it has this like chutzpah um, that it thinks that I exist and it, it thinks that it is its own source. Why does it think it's, it is its own source? beside. The reason is because the chayas that they have is within them in a hidden way. In gullus, it's they receive chayas in a way of gullus, in a way 
of, of concealment. Um, so even though they're receiving the energy from a, kedush, a place of Kedusha, they are not battle. They don't nullify themselves. On the contrary, they raise themselves up. They think that they're special. They think they're independent. They think they have their own power. Um, and the life that they draw down basically becomes like swallowed up within them. So another analogy that Hasidus uses for this is that this is called Bidera, that, that Klippa receives its energy, Bidera Achurayim. It's sort of thrown from behind the back, as opposed to Kedusha receives its, its energy, Panim Bapanim. So when it's Panim Bapanim, when it's face-to-face, I see my source, I see where my energy is coming from, then I know who I am, and I know that I don't really exist. I know that I'm just completely and totally one with Hashem, that without God, I would not exist. But when Hashem sort of just throws the energy over his back, and it's not directed directly into them specifically, it's not panim and they sort of just receive this energy without knowing exactly where it's coming from. Therefore, it's sort of just, they swallow the energy, the godliness of it becomes totally subsumed within them, and then they act with that energy, thinking that it's, it, it's their own energy. This is how evil exists. This is how bad exists. And this is how bad is energized. And this is how bad acts as a result of its energy in this seemingly independent way. Now, obviously, Hashem wants it to have its energy. Hashem is giving them the energy and he wants there to be these independent forces so that we can then make the whole world into a dear Without the independent forces, we don't have any concealment. Um, but this is how they receive their energy. So just a reminder, why are we talking about this? We want to understand the 11 ingredients in the Kateras, right? So they're receiving from the 10 spheres. So if the if Klippa is receiving its energy and it just sort of gets swallowed up within them, how do they stay alive? You would think that if the energy from Hashem is just being subsumed within them, they would they would die as well because it seems to just get lost within them. So they're no longer connected. So how do they remain in a state of chayas? And this is where our 11th ingredient comes in. How is it that they remain alive from a place of Kedusha? After the energy sort of gets swallowed up by them, this is the concept of levaina, which is one of the ingredients in the Kateras is Levina. Shabi Yud Alef Samane Hakateras. Shahu Ar Hamakif Aleya Milamaila Veina Nivla Besechan. And it's a light that shines down on them from above that is not, doesn't get swallowed up within them. I'll read a little further and then I'll explain what this means. Velafi Shahu Ar Hamakif Milamaila Min Hadas. And because this is a Ar Makif, because this is an encompassing light, which is higher than Das, Shalahem, than their understanding, the Ina Margishin by they don't feel it at all. Nivla. So the inner, the chayas that they actually take into themselves internally just gets swallowed up, as we explain. And therefore, that's why they just raise themselves up. So basically, what happens is this. 
Everything in this world receives two forms of energy. It receives internal energy and encompassing energy. The internal energy of klipa basically just gets swallowed up. It just gets sort of dissipates within them. And therefore, they think that they're independent because the energy that they receive just becomes, just becomes fully and totally absorbed and becomes basically totally one with them and they no longer acknowledge it. But they also receive an encompassing energy. An encompassing energy and a makif light is much, much higher than a light that comes with panemius. And this is also, these are also concepts that we've already um, started discussing, the difference between the makif energy, the encompassing energy versus the energy that is internalized. So the energy that is encompassing and doesn't need to be internalized is able to be much higher because in order to internalize something, I need to understand it. I need to comprehend it in my intellect and my emotions. In order to have an energy that in order to have a makif energy, I don't need to understand it. It completely encompasses me. It's something that sort of sweeps me up and picks me up along with it. So I don't need to understand it. So when it comes to the klipa, they don't even know that the makif energy is what is keeping them alive. They don't even have a, they're too lowly to even have any concept of this makif. They don't have any recognition of this makif light. And they think, therefore, so, so, so this makif light is really what is enlivening them, but they think that they're just enlivening themselves. And this makif energy is the energy of Levina, which is a very high level of godliness. So what is Levina? Levina is what connects the 10 holy spheres that they should be able to in, um, give light within the 10 spheres of unholiness. And this is represented by the head of Esav. Um, which is the makif from above, who that it becomes included in the chest of Yitzchak, Mamish, Bekadusha, that it's included literally in Kadusha. And therefore, because of the makif, Esav asked, how do we bring Meiser on straw? But because of his Pneumius from his internal element, the name of Hashem wasn't constantly on his lips. So we see that Esav has this split personality. Why is it that he has this split personality? Because he has his Pneumius energy. Because, like we said before, Esav was is the dregs of Gevura, meaning that he is sort of receiving Gevura in this way, the way that Klippa receives its energy, right? From the leftovers. So in his internal world, thinks in his internal world, the light sort of becomes, like we said before, Nivla, it becomes swallowed up. It doesn't really, it just becomes completely absorbed within him and his own ego. And therefore, in his internal light, he doesn't have the name of Hashem constantly on his mouth because he's completely egocentric and he's completely just focused on himself. He's not God. He's not God-centric in his internal life. But there still is this makif energy that is what's giving him his life force that he doesn't even know he has. So why is it that he goes and asks his father 
about um, taking Miser. On the one hand, you might see he's trying to trick his father that his father should like him. Right? That his father should like him. He wants to please his father. He knows his father likes Tara. So he goes and he asks him about these complex questions of Miser to show that he, that, so that his father should like him. But Valtteri is saying something a little bit different. He's saying, no, he has this side to him. He doesn't even know where it's coming from that he's asking this question. But really, he's being controlled by this, what's, where is his original life source is this Levina Makith energy that is giving him life and it's driving him toward asking these questions. Right, and in a way you could say like both are true. Like, like meaning he's, he's sort of, he's putting on this facade of being more from, so to say, but that's really betraying something deeper, deeper about him. Exactly. It's revealing his inner truth, which is why we do see that he is devastated when he doesn't end up receiving the blessings because it's almost we're on a certain level unvalidating this this side of him and we're going to talk about why that's necessary and how we can then revalidate it in the proper way but there is something that rings true to him about the about receiving the blessings from Hashem despite the fact that the name of Hashem isn't on his lips, despite the fact that he is typically driven by his ego. Right. You know, something else I was thinking about when you were describing the difference between Klippa and Kedusha, how Kedusha, like, when Kedusha receives its highest, it's, it, there's a sense of bittle, while Klippa receives, and it and it just kind of swallows it up and, and just sort of has this, like, arrogance or this audacity to, like, um, you know, deny its source. Anyway, I was thinking like, you know, we like like with ourselves internally, like we, we can kind of like choose what we want to align with. Like if we want to align with Kedusha or Klippa and, you know, we're receiving Chayas from Hashem all the time and how we experience that Chayas has to do with, you know, like do we experience it with a sense of like humility of like that that, that we're being, um, you know, Hashem is, is giving to us and we're receiving something. Um, and that creates a sense of humility in us, or does it like create this sense of like arrogance or like self-assurance or self-confidence because, you know, we attribute that highest to ourselves as opposed to acknowledging that's coming from something outside of us. Um, yeah. so yeah, I feel like it's a good, it's like, like we choose for which, which part of ourselves we, we, we align with. Am I going to align with the body, which senses itself as independent, or am I going to yeah. align with my soul, which recognizes its source? Yeah, and I feel like it's a good it's a good thing to think about whenever like we receive like blessings in our lives, you know, like what's our how how do we receive those blessings? Like how do we react to them, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So we'll continue inside. This is the second paragraph of the Mimer. So so far what we've just established is that Asaph's head is connected to the head is the highest part of his body, right? And also in general, head is, is the whole idea of the head is that, it, that it's round, similar to, to a, um, a makith, and it's also the control center of the body, right? So the head is the control center of the body. So his head, which is literally controlling the rest of the body, is ends up with Yitzchak in Marasamach Pela to show that his head is actually the makif of his head. The makif energy that he has is really connected and close to Kedusha. And it comes, it comes from a holy source, despite the fact that after 
the whole evolution of him, he ends up going down a unholy path. His head still ends up in Maris Machpelah because it represents his the ultimate source of his energy, which is comes from a very um, high levels of godliness. Okay, so it's known that the energy in the ten unholy spheres um, is basically um, swallowed up and spit out again. The is asher shalat ha'adam ba'adam l'ralai. And there is a time when one rules over another person, but to his detriment. So even though he's ruling over something, it's to his detriment. So what are these, what are these um, sources telling us? That the energy in Klippa is going to be redeemed. So the energy in, in Klippa so there's energy that goes into the klipa, as we mentioned. And the ultimate point it receives from this very high level of energy. But it's going to be swallowed up, meaning that it's, swall like we said before, that the energy is swallowed up in, in to klipa. But then what's going to happen to it, it's going to be spit out. Um, and what does this mean? It means that there are sparks that are the sparks of holiness that come from this makif into klipa are going to eventually be redeemed. And that's really the purpose of creation. Um, and why, why is this? And this is because the sparks that fell into Klippa at the beginning of the creation of the world, with the shattering of the vessels, which is um, alluded to in the king's in the rulership of the kings of Edom, and also um, the sparks that fell as a result of the chet etzadas, and therefore, Klipa has this chayas, this very high energy within it, but it's in a galus, it's in a state of galus, it's in a state of concealment, as we mentioned before. So Chazal tell us something interesting, that we were put into galus in order to gather gerim, in order to gather converts. And it's a very interesting thing, because in general, we don't really think of Judaism as a proselytizing religion. We're not trying to get converts. So is that why we're put into Gullis to get converts? And Hasidus explains that the converts that we're getting over here are not seeking new people, but rather that we're pulling out the sparks that were hidden in Klippa. And he's actually going to list a number of Gerim that comes that are specifically descendants of Esav. That what do we say? The sparks fell into Esav. These converts are sort of how we were pulling out the sparks that got lost within Esav. We're pulling them out. And that is in these people who are descendants of Esav. Those are the sparks that got lost over there. So too within Esav, there were all these great lofty sparks of holiness. Kamai Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is a descendant of Esav. Unkelos, Vishmaya, Vaivadia. These are all very holy people. 
that were descendants of Esau that needed to be drawn out, needed to be sort of swallowed up and then spit back out into the Jewish people. It's not such a pleasant visual, but that is the idea that it sort of becomes subsumed within the klipa, but then it is redeemed, it's spit back out and it becomes, um, and it becomes reunited with Kedusha. And that's why it also, we mentioned earlier that it says, we, it, sometimes you rule over something to your own detriment. The klipa is ruling over the, is ruling over this holy chayas. It sort of has control over the holiness, but then it's to its own detriment because what happens once the spark is redeemed, it all falls apart. The klipa itself falls apart. It no longer has a purpose, right? So once we redeem the spark, then we're able to, um, once we, we sort of pull it out, we separate between the, the holiness and the unholiness. We save the good and then we're able to destroy the bad. Um, so once we gain the clarity of which parts are good and which parts are bad, then we're able to get rid of the bad. So it's to its own detriment, the fact that it has this holiness within it, right? Um, so like we said before, so there are all these, all these, um, positive sparks that are within, in Asav. And that's also what it's saying, Hayat Sayed Befiv, that when it talks about how Asav had this, um, was asking, um, Yitzchak these questions, it's also referring, what is it? What did Yitzchak see when he sees Esav asking these questions? Yitzchak, with his vision, with his lofty vision, sees not just Esav asking these questions, but he sees all these positive sparks that are going to come out in his, in his descendants. He sees all this incredible potential energy that is within Esav. That's what it means when it says that he that he basically bought him, so to speak, with his mouth, was that he sees that these questions really represent people like Rabbi Meir, someone like Unculus. So he sees if, if this is already in, in Esav in potential, that means that Esav has this amazing energy. And Yitzchak wanted, so he sees these trapped souls in Esav. And Yitzchak's desire was to redeem these, this trapped light by himself. He wanted to be the one to purify his son. He wanted to be the one to redeem the holiness from his son. Because how did, I'm going to summarize this part a little bit more briefly outside, then we'll go back inside. What was sort of God's intent? How did Hashem sort of set this up? Hashem set it up that Esav is going to be redeemed specifically through Yaakov. Yaakov represents Zah. He represents the seven Midas of the, of the ten spheres. He represents the seven emotions. And um, basically, the general way that we talk about how in Hasidus, about how sparks are redeemed, the way that we purify the world is through going through a process, a redeeming process, where we take something and refine it thoroughly by first making it smaller, right? By first understanding it. And then from my, my mind, it goes through my emotions and it goes through a sort of methodical process. That's how I redeem the sparks. So through studying Terra, understanding the Terra, and then going out into the world and encountering the world and dealing with the world in a very methodical way, 
And over many years, I'm going to slowly but surely, um, so the language we'll use is elevate the sparks, right? We'll slowly but surely elevate the sparks. We'll slowly but surely transform the world into a state of godliness. And Yaakov represents this organized structure, right? So Esav is disorganized chaos that has these lost sparks within it. And Yaakov represents the organized structure. And Yitzchak thinks, hey, what if we can access the sparks directly from like this crazy, chaotic, disorganized source? Then it's on a much higher level of energy. So let's bypass Yaakov. We don't have to go through Yaakov. Let's bypass Yaakov and I'll just access this energy directly. And what was his, how was he going to access the energy directly? He was going to access the energy directly through the brachis that he was going to give him. The brachis he was going to give him were supposed to be this immense, crazy magnet that would be able to draw the positivity out of, out of Esau. So I'll read about that a little bit, um, a little bit more inside. So Ach Yitzchak, we'll skip a few lines, which explains that we... Um, why Yaakov might be the, needs to be the intermediary, why Yaakov is set up to be the intermediary. And we'll skip to Achitak Ratza Shaliya He wanted to redeem the sparks not through Zah, Rakshiya, but rather that the that the sparks of holiness should be able to be enlightened within Esav himself. So it's not that Yaakov has to absorb the sparks of Esau, let's say through Esau's descendant becoming a getter, but rather that he should be able to, that within Esau himself, Esau should be able to um, understand godliness himself and through that reveal the sparks of godliness in Esau. That the, the holiness should be able to be revealed, but within Esau itself, and then Yitzchak envisions that this will also transform Esau, that if he's able to reveal within Esau the fact that he's actually from this higher source, then that will transform Esau at his source, that it doesn't have to come through Yaakov or be extracted through Yaakov, but that Esau himself could be revealed to have this element of Kedusha. Um, and then it would be a much greater and stronger light. Excuse me. And this was the necessity for a stronger light. Because in order to extract, to, to refine the good from the bad, he needed to shine upon him a great, great, great light. So that he would be able to gather all of the sparks that were hidden over there. Vizehu, and this is why he blessed him, that um, this is the bracha that Yitzchak gave in actuality to Yaakov, but as he is intending to Esav, he says, Hashem should give to you mital hashamayim from the dew of the heavens. 
what is he blessing him that Hashem should give to you from the dew of the heavens? He's saying, So what is this? The tal, the dew of from Atik that falls into za, which is the level of Shemayim. So what does that mean? Sounds very... Um, Lofty. We'll explain in a minute. We'll just read one more part and then we'll explain. And also from the fat of the land. Shemen hu chachma. Shemen represents chachma. Represents um, the level of chachma. In this case, we're referring to Hashem's chachma. Va'aba yisad brata. And the father is the source of the daughter. Hanikra eretz, which is called eretz. So what does this mean? He's blessing Esav that Hashem should give to you from the dew, which is this high level of dew from the level of Atik, which is immense level of holiness, and also from the level of Chachma, and that it should come down from Tal into Shemayim, come down from the high level of Atik into a lower level of Shemayim, or Mishmane from Chachma into Eretz into the land. So we're taking these massive blessings and bringing them down. That he wants to draw down. What is a bracha? A bracha means hamshacha, right? That's what a bracha means. A bracha is drawing down. So his intention in this blessing is to draw down this tal, this dew, v'hashem and and the oil from above, that through that, there should be the elevating of the sparks. Just like we see, by way of example, that when the sun shines on the earth, in the heat of the day, it returns the the moisture of the of the earth evaporates, the and so too like a like a fire a, a, a fire in front of a huge flame a candle in front of a huge flame, the light is then pulled to its source. So just like when the sun shines, it causes water to, with like immense light, it causes water to evaporate and go back up, so to speak, to the heavens. Or like a huge fire causes, attracts a smaller fire to it. So, so too, um, the intention is that if we have this huge revelation of Tal and Shemen, which are, like we mentioned before, represent very, very high levels of godliness. Hashem is saying, Yitzchak is saying, may Hashem bless you. He's drawing down these huge, massive levels of godliness. And what's he intending these massive levels of godliness to do to Esau? To zap out and to sort of um, draw out, evaporate the holiness that is within him so that it's able to come to, the, to light to show that there is the holiness in there. So by shining, like laser beaming, this massive energy of Hashem onto Esav, he's hoping to attract the sparks that are within Esav and pull them out. Hmm. But this never actually happened because Esav never actually got the brachas. This bracha went to 
Jakob instead. So why did that why did that happen? We're going to get to that uh, momentarily. Um, it needs to be specifically in, with immense strength, which is the level of bracha. When we have a bracha, that means we're drawing from beyond Seder Shalshalas into Seder Shalshalas. Because according to Seder Shalshalas, Esav wasn't worthy of this. Right? Like we said before, in his Pneumia self, in his internal self, which is what we're talking about, the Seder Hestalshala self, in his created self, he was not worth, he was, he, the, the good that was in him was completely swallowed up. And he was in his ego space. It's only in a Makif way that he has this light. So um, Yitzchak thinks if I draw down from a place of Makif, from a place that's beyond Seder Hestalshalas, I'll be able to attract the energy from him that is also beyond Seder Hestalshalas. Because in a previous way, I don't think he's not actually worthy. Right? So it needs to be in a, in a makif, and it needs to be a makif energy to draw out the energy from Asaph. Because the good that he has is in a way of a makif. It's not absorbed. Okay, and this is why he says Hashem should bless you, Havaya specifically, Lifne Havaya Dafka, specifically saying beyond Havaya, meaning beyond Seder Hashtal, just beyond creation. And so the desire that Yitzchak had, and that he wanted to be able to reach Esav himself and not through Yaakov, was because he sees his vision, the vision of Yitzchak, is from above to below. So meaning he sees everything at its, in its source, not from um, below to above. From below to above, we see Asav as this very lonely person. Versus from above to below, he's able to see, he's able to recognize this very, very lofty source. Um, he's able to see this level of Levina, this level of, ma- of Makith, this level of very, very immense energy, that Taihu energy that is energizing Asav. Um, and that's why he wanted to bring down, reveal to him this immense level of makif in order to reattract um, the light. So what was wrong with this? Where did where did Yitzhak go wrong? Because it sounds like it sounds like a good plan. Why did Rifka get involved? And why did we have to trick him into not doing his plan? But he made a mistake. And again, when we say a tzaddik makes a mistake, it's not that he didn't understand what was going on. He understood what was going, he understood all the pieces, but it wasn't aligned with the way that Hashem wanted it to work. Right? This was not the way that Hashem wanted this scenario to play out. So Yitzchak, knowing, understanding the dynamics, wants to play around with the pieces. Right? Wants to sort of play chess and have it work, uh, bypass the whole system. But Hashem wants the system that he created. So 
that's his mistake, right? Um, so he made a mistake with this. She'ain Esav kadai bevachina zu. Even though he has basically what's Yitzchak doing? He's only taking into account the energy and he's not taking into account the vessel. So he wants to attract the energy with another amazing source of energy, but he doesn't realize that just like in the original world of Taihu, the energies, the vessels, the energies were too big for the vessels. And therefore, when the energy went into the vessels, the vessels broke, so to speak. So too, Asa was not a worthy vessel for this massive bracha that Yitzchak wanted to give to him. It was too much for him. So what happens when it's too much? Um, when it's too much, there's two, two ways that it can go. Either the whole thing just shatters and breaks and dies, right? Either he's going to give him too much energy and one scenario would be that Asaph would just die. He wouldn't be able to handle it. He wouldn't be able to handle having the brachis. The other example, possibility is that once it comes inside of him, it becomes distorted. Because like we said before, any energy that actually enters inside of him gets distorted, gets swallowed up. It just feeds his ego. So similarly, if he does get the brachas and he is able to absorb them, it will just, because he's not a ready vessel yet and he hasn't gone through the whole process that Yaakov is going to take him through of refinement if he does receive the energy internally, he's just going to distort it and it will just be swallowed up like all the other previous energy. Um, sort of like, you know, if there's an addict and they, you want to help them. So you give them money to go to rehab and they're going to potentially use the money. If, if they're not at that place where they're committed themselves, they're going to potentially just use the money to buy more of whatever they're addicted to because the vessel is not yet at that space. So even if the energy is pure energy, it can be misdirected into the klipa. So this is, this was, um, this was Yitzchak's mistake. Ki'im, but rather what was the way that it still needed to be worked out was through al Yaday Yaakov. It needed to still happen through Yaakov. Shalafisha im haya hachayas nimshach if the if the chayas would have drawn into Esav, it would have just been swallowed us, um, as if it never existed. Or basically, Esav would just, I don't know, it almost sounds like Esav would just like disappear. Like there would be no Esav anymore. He wasn't able to handle it. In order to transform the darkness into light, and the bitterness into sweetness, the only way to do it is through the system, through Yaakov, which is the za of Kedusha, the Zerampen of Kedusha, the emotions of Kedusha. Because once he goes through the process of actually separating the good from Esav, and then it becomes included in Kedusha, that's the way that Yaakov does it. He goes through the whole process of separation, not bypassing the evil, separating it and including the, separating the good and the bad and including the good within holiness. Maybe when he says like, 
maybe another way of understanding is like we, we wouldn't be able to access that dimension of Asaf at all. Meaning like it's almost like when you have too much R and you don't have Kalim to handle it, like either like so let's say for example, like you try to communicate an idea that's too deep or like too intense for a child to right. handle or like for them to process, right? So either they just don't get it at all. Like they just they don't the message just doesn't come through at all. Or like it right. comes through but in this very distorted way and they kind of like warp it and distort it. Um so it almost seems like either either like Asav is just gonna kind of tr like channel that, that light towards Klepa and it will just get distorted, or like he just can't. It will just, it just will remain in bounce off, bounce, bounce off. off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um. And so just I'm just gonna insert over here. The mimer doesn't actually talk about this, but I've learned a number of other places where it does talk about the difference between Rifka and Yitzchak. I think this is a good place yeah. to, to put it in, right? Yeah. So Yitzchak, so like we said before, you would think that we say that Avram is chesed, so he's not discerning, right? He, there's no discern, there, he, he's not discerning, and that's why he's able to love Yishmael. You would think someone like Yitzchak, who's Gevura, would be able to be discerning. But because, like we mentioned previously, because he's coming from such a high place and he's viewing everything from above down. That means his discernment and his judgment is only on the source level, not on the way it mm. comes out in actuality, which is a very interesting right. thing. So yeah. we think of like Gevura and its ultimate state as being very like judgy of us in our current actions. Right. And the way that we act, maybe Gevura in its higher state is not judging of us, but judging of our source. And therefore, because it knows our source, it also knows, am I acting aligned with my truest self? Am I acting aligned with my deeper powers? So it's not judging how I act, but in actuality, as much as how much am I in tune with where I really come from? How much am I living up to my potential? Which is just an interesting point to consider. Um, Rifka, on the other hand, we talk about how Rifka is connected to shame ban which is the name of Hashem, which is connected very much to Malchus. Um, it says if you scramble the letters of Rivka, it's, it, it becomes Bakar, cattle, which doesn't seem very complimentary. And there's a whole, there's a bunch of like Kabbalistic um, associations that we have with Rivka, which connect her very much to the earth. We see the place where she comes from. She comes, right? We see Malchus is connected to, to the earth. She's connected to cattle. She comes from Lavan's home, from Basuel's home. She comes from very low places. But the fact that she comes from these low places actually works to her advantage in this scenario where she doesn't see, she's not judging the potential. She's judging the potential as it also is able to be, to come out in actuality. So she's looking at the whole picture. She's able to see the entire picture. So she sees that, yes, she can acknowledge that, yes, there's amazing potential in her son, in Esav. And she can't fight that potential with her husband because it's true, right? There's nothing, there's nothing to argue about. But she, with her understanding, knows there's no way that it could come about on his own. That there's no way it cannot be actualized just through him. And that if the brachas go to him, it's not going to be a good thing. So she intervenes and she gets Yaakov to dress up as Esav 
and to go into, into his father. And this is also not mentioned directly in the mimer, but just something to think about. What does it mean that Yaakov needs to put on Esau's clothes? Because in order for us to be able to access the good that's in evil, we need to sometimes have an understanding of Esau. If we want to be able to elevate the, the good that's in the bad, we need to put ourselves into bad shoes, so to speak. We need to find the Esau within ourselves, even, with, even like we were mentioning before, which part of myself am I going to align with? And how am I going to draw out sort of the good from the more negative parts with myself? Sometimes I need to be able to have like this empathy almost for Esau and be able to like view him and go, go into his shoes. And then from going into his shoes, then we see, as we're going to see in a moment, that the brachis that come to, ya um, that come to Yaakov are eventually going to go to Esau as well. The intention is that Esau receives blessings as well, but he just receives them through Yaakov. But Yaakov can only give the blessings to Esau if he dresses up as Esau first. If he has some sort of understanding of Esau, if he puts himself into Esau's place a little bit, the only way we can, we can extract the good from evil is if we understand a little bit, if we interact with it a little bit, as we've uh, mentioned in a number of the classes. And sometimes it does take getting a little dirty, quite literally, in this situation in order to be able to fix something. Hmm. Um, so that's what we're going to read a little bit more over here. Um, okay, so what does it mean that Yaakov is the one who's going to um, rectify Esav? As, as we mentioned before. And that's why Yitzchak eventually agreed to bench Yaakov. So it's interesting. It seems from this that even though Yaakov presented himself to him and he's, he plays along, but he really knows what's going on. As he hints when he says, he knows this is not just the regular situation. He, but, he, but once it's set up in this way, he plays along and he, bend, and he agrees to bench, to bench Yaakov instead. Afterwards, he gives to Esav, he blesses Esav that he should have from the fat of, of Yaakov's land, Esav should be able to receive from that. So Yaakov is receiving the blessing and then Esav receives the blessing from Yaakov secondhand. So once it's gone through sort of a limiting process, so that it's in a, in a, on a level, Yaakov basically takes the energy and he limits it in a way that Esav could, could absorb it. That it's not too great that it's just going to refract right off of him, but that he is able to absorb it. That's the job of, of Yaakov. Okay, but basically the point is that um, Esav is not able to receive the blessings directly. He needs to receive them through Yaakov who goes through a process of limiting it and making it in a way that Esav is, is able to receive. And there's also a condition. The condition is for Esav to receive the blessings, there's a condition that you need to serve your brother. That he needs to be, Esav needs to have this element of bittel to Yaakov. What is the, introducing the idea to Esav that no, you, you feel so independent 
you feel like you're your own source, we need to humble you first. Through this, not receiving the blessing was already a first step of humility for Asaph. The fact that his brother got it over him. And that's the beginning process of him able being able to receive the blessings is first, that's part of how we, that's how we kill Klippa is by giving it, feeding it some humble pie because that's what Klippa is. Klippa is ego. So once we, once we make him need to serve Yahweh, that's already diminishing his negative energy and he's much more able to receive from, from the positive. So basically to wrap up what, what we're saying. So Yitzchak rep- recognizes because he sees from above, his vision is from above to below and he has such clarity in where everything comes from. He sees this really high source of Esav's energy. He sees that Esav is receiving his energy from this place called the Vaino, which is this immense makif taihu energy. And he wants to be able to access that energy himself. He wants to be able to save his son on his own. And the method he thinks he's going to use is to just basically beam him with this massive amount of energy from above through his brachis, and that will basically attract the energy out and rectify his son. But Hashem and therefore Rivka and Yaakov recognize that that's not the way that um, Hashem intends for Esav to be rectified, that Esav is supposed to be rectified through his brother Yaakov. And this is basically what we've been doing all through Gullus is rectifying Esav through Yaakov, you could say, either through our associations with the Western world, which is sort of what Esav has come to, to represent, Adam, Rome, the Western world, through our spreading out throughout the world and and our interactions with, with the world, we give bracha to them, to the world, and also extract the good parts from the bad parts and elevate those positive parts. But those brachas need to come through through Yaakov, because if it goes to Esav directly, it gets distorted or he can't absorb it. And therefore, Yaakov needs to receive the blessings. And from Yaakov, we can then bless Esav. And perhaps maybe we can say for ourselves, as we mentioned before, that we have a microcosm of Esav and Yaakov within us as well. And so we have to recognize when I'm giving energy, who am I giving the energy to? Am I trying sometimes we're not so conscious of which parts of ourselves we're feeding. And if we feed Asaph directly, maybe the energy will get distorted. And when I say feed, I'm not talking about like literally with food, but we're talking about, you know, where am I putting my time, my energy, my kechas? Where am I giving, what am I giving light to? Am I giving light to um, that part of myself or am I giving light to the Yaakov part of myself? And then through a slow a a slow process of refinement, I'm able to then encounter the more negative parts of myself and work through them. But if I jump to working through certain parts of myself that I'm not ready for, the energy could sort of just get, like we said before, nivla, just become swallowed up and it's a waste. Yeah, I think like two things that I I was thinking about was, first of all, just like a, a little thing that like, we often have like very high expectations for our children and them reaching their fullest potential and all kinds of things that we expect for them. And sometimes it's reassuring to know that sometimes a child will only reach their full potential through their descendants. You know, like sometimes it's not even in their lifetime that they reach access the full potential that they have, but there's going to be a whole future <laughs> where that, that, that potential could be actualized. Um, and then also, I guess like, I feel like one of the messages of this mimer is like, 
you know, like inspiration, idealism, um, those things are overrated in a certain sense. And, you know, often, you know, we can, we can feel very inspired or feel very excited about something. Um, and it's almost like the practical day-to-day implementation, like in the long run ends up mattering more, um, in terms of the actual impact that it has. And sometimes I feel like we, we romanticize like the inspiration and the passion and the excitement that we have, that we might have, you know, in our lives and kind of sometimes we can like undermine sort of the value of just being able to like practically implement something in a very realistic day-to-day, um, way. Um, but yeah, ultimately that's like, I think what Rifka saw was that as exciting and as, as powerful as Aesop's energy was at the end of the day, if it couldn't actually be accessed in like in a healthy, like realistic way, it wasn't, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And like, it wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't the direction we had to take, you know? Right. And I think like bouncing off of that is that we're, we live in a world where we're very hesitant to judge and to, to use our, our level of our, our, our element of judgment. And we want to just see potential and it is so important to see potential and to recognize the good in everyone and to see the good in everyone. And it's only because Yitzchak can see the good in Esav that he that Yaakov is then later on able to um, refine it. But at the same time, it's also so important to be in touch with reality. And reality is that not everyone is the same and not everyone is as good at one thing as everyone else is. Not everyone is equal, that we all have our differences and that um, it's not negative to see, it's not negative to see the differences and the the strengths and weaknesses of the people around us, especially when we're trying to nurture them. That in order to nurture them, we need to understand them. And understanding them means understanding their weaknesses as well. Not focusing on it too much, maybe not telling it straight to their faces, but knowing that no, being aware of, of the weakness in people around us can help us in our interactions with them. So not always looking at something, like you said, first of all, just about the world, like not always looking at everything from such an idealistic place that it needs to come down into action. But the truth is that when we're trying to nurture, especially like we see over here, when we're trying to nurture our the, the people that we need to be able to see, see the full picture. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think also realizing that not, it's not always the right time. <laughs> you know, like it's not like Ace of his potential will never be accessed. There will be a time when it will be accessed and it will be, we will be able to harness that energy, but it might not be the right time. And like, sometimes, you know, we need to recognize that yes, ultimately everything has, there's always good in it. You could always find an opportunity in every situation and, and like every quality has a positive side to it and all that. But sometimes like, it's not the right time and place to access that. And like trying to access it when it's not the right time or it's not the right situation um, can be counterproductive, you know, like having that discernment of like, what is the right time for this to be, for this to be accessed.